David. Well, good evening, everyone. So it's the 1st of December. 1st of December means it's officially acceptable and socially acceptable to listen to your Christmas playlist or to put your Christmas decorations up or literally do anything Christmas Eve because we all know that normal people only do that in the month of December. True? Not before. Not before. Strange, weird, bizarre people, you should avoid do it before that. So you can listen to your playlist from today on. You can put your direct decorations up from today on. Anyone been sneaking a little listen to some songs before today? Okay, we'll get the prayer ministry team to pray that out of you at the end of the service. <laughs> that premature fest of joy. Not, no thank you. Well, I want to talk about music in a sense, and I want to talk about the Christmas number one, because Christmas number one has been a thing since 1952, and every year since, there's this week and run up to Christmas where bands go to war or they go to battle to be crowned the king or the queen of the charts, the festive charts. And throughout those years, we've had some really classic Christmas songs, we've had some really cheesy Christmas songs, we've had some downright annoying Christmas tunes. I wonder what your favorite song is. Well, as we turn to the passage that we're coming to tonight, it's going to be Isaiah chapter 7. As we come to it, there's kind of this battle on to be the number one. But it's nothing to do with music, this passage. It's not to get the Christmas number one music hit. It's literally to be the number one world superpower. It's to take all supreme power, and that's what this battle is about. And Isaiah chapter 7 is the festive passage that I have chosen for us to look at tonight. So if you have a Bible, um, I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. The reason I'm reading from the New Living Translation is because it's one of the translations that doesn't chop and change some of the names. So if you were to follow along in your passage, in your Bible version, you might see that sometimes the names of the kings and the names of their kingdoms change throughout this, and it can get really confusing. So I want to stick in this passage just to help us be clear on what is happening in this passage. So this is Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read this, and then I'm going to pray. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the grandson of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king reason of Assyria, and Pekah, son of Ramaleah, the king of Israel, set out to attack Jerusalem. However, they were unable to carry out their plan. The news had come to the royal court of Judah. Syria is allied with Israel against us. So the heart of the king and his people trembled with fear, like trees shaking in a storm. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, take your son, Sher Jezub, and go and meet King Ahaz. You will find him at the end of the aqueduct that feeds water into the upper pool, near the road leading to the field where cloth is washed. Tell him to stop worrying. Tell him that he doesn't need to fear the fierce anger of those two burning embers, King Rezan of, of Syria and King Pekin, son of Ramaleah. Yes, the king of Syria and Israel are plotting against you, saying, we will attack Judah and capture it for ourselves. Then we will install the son of Tebel as Judah's king. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. This invasion will never happen. It will never take place. For Syria is no stronger than its capital, Damascus. And Damascus is no stronger than its king, Reason. As for Israel, within 65 years, it will be crushed and completely destroyed. 
Israel is no stronger than its capital, Samaria. And Samaria is no stronger than its king, Pekah. Unless your faith is firm, I cannot cannot make you stand firm. And verses 10 to 17 is the sign of Emmanuel. Later, the Lord sent a message to the king Ahaz. Ask the Lord for your God for a sign of confirmation, Ahaz. Make it as difficult as you want, as high as the heavens or as deep as the place of the dead. But the king refused. No, he said, I will not put the Lord my God to the test like that. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you also exhaust the patience of God? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. By the time the child is old enough to choose what is right and reject what is wrong, he will be eating yogurt and honey. For before the child is old, the land of the two kings you fear so much will both be deserted. Then the Lord will bring things on you, your nation and your family, unlike anything else Israel broke away from Judah He will bring the king of Assyria upon you. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you for your word. And I want to pray now that you will come by your spirit and you will be our teacher. We ask our God that you will open our ears and open our hearts. And we pray, God, that you will prepare our hearts and transform our hearts for what you have to say. As we take this passage and as we look at this passage and lift out hope from this passage... Take the glory, take the honor. We ask these things in your name for your glory. And everyone said, amen. Okay, Isaiah chapter seven. Hands up if you thought Isaiah chapter seven was a very Christmassy passage. Nobody? Nobody think that was a Christmassy, no Merry Christmas at the end of that? I have to be honest, it is probably one of the most non-Christmas passages that you could probably read today in a sense. Other than verse 14, which says... The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The rest of the passage does not seem to have anything to do with Christmas whatsoever. In fact, it's an angry, bloody, violent civil war, one which has been raging for about a hundred years at this point. There is nothing merry about this passage. Last week, David finished a series looking at the life of Solomon. We looked at his life, his reign, and his fall last week. And we, if you were to follow on from where Solomon's ended there in chapter 11 of 1 Kings, what you find over the next number of years is that they have a kingdom which is united. And after a number of years, that kingdom splits in two and divides. And that's the first time that kingdom divides or splits in 380 years. And it divides into the north and it divides into the south. So I'm going to throw a map up on the screen just to show you um, I think I used this in one of the sermons. So this is Solomon's empire way up there, the Euphrates, all the way down to the Red Sea. That was all part of the kingdom. And that was all a united kingdom. There was no north and there was no south. That was a united kingdom at that point. But by the time we come to Isaiah chapter 7, it's 199 years since Solomon's kingdom was united. And now 199 years later, it's split in two, and everything is in a complete and utter mess. 
And there's a battle or a war that's about to start in this. You have Pekah, who is the king of the north. You have Ahaz, who's a king in the south. And in the mix comes this king called Rezin of Syria. He's another up-and-coming pagan power in the region. But the emerging superpower of the day is this other nation called Assyria. They were an expanding military force that were hell-bent on just taking over everything. They hated the north and they hated the south. In fact, they hated anyone who would get in the way. And they were known to be a really bloody and really ruthless and really violent nation. So you've got this battle in Isaiah chapter 7 between Israel, Judah, Syria, and Assyria. In fact, the next map will maybe give you a better idea of where we are here. So you can see Assyria is this big yellow color that's all over this. That is their empire at this stage. It takes over all of this, running all the way from Assyria right down through um, Jerusalem, all the way down through to Egypt. And you can see where Syria would be, kind of in around the Damascus area. And you can see where Judah and where Israel are in there too. These two tiny little dots at this point. And the world superpower is Assyria. So if you're going to do a Christmas number one battle against this, you need to get some people on your side, or you need to be a really strong, powerful kingdom in and of yourself if you, stand, if you are to stand a chance against Assyria. Well, before this battle starts, what we find is there's a bit of cold feet in the middle of this battle. There's a bit of stage fright and panic, and two groups eyeball the rest of the competition, and they realize we just don't have the X factor here. We don't have what it takes to be strong enough or powerful enough to take on Assyria. They're the main threat and we're not strong enough. So we'll just do a little Christmas duo at this point. But even with that, even as those as Syria and Israel come together, there's still no match for the superpower which is Assyria. So they hatch a new plan, and their plan this time is that they want a little Christmas trio. If only they could get Judah on their side, then three against one, and they might stand a chance. They just might stand a chance of defeating them in this passage. But the problem is that Judah just won't play along. They just don't want to join sides. And that's a problem. That's a problem for Israel, and it's a problem for Syria. And the only way to get rid of that problem is to get rid of the king of Judah. Because if he's not going to toe the line, if he's not going to sign up, if he's not going to conform, then we need to get rid of him. And the only way we can get rid of him is to knock him off his throne. The only way we can rock, knock him off his throne is if we destroy him or destroy his kingdom. And what happens in Isaiah chapter 7 stains these pages with much blood. Because if you read that passage and do a little work behind that passage, you will discover that in one day there's 120,000 men who are slaughtered in one single day. You also have 120,000 women and children who are captives and taken away as slaves. I told you this wasn't a very Christmassy passage, but that's what happens in this story. And we need to remind ourselves that 199 years earlier, these two kingdoms were on the same side. They were friends. They were united. They weren't enemies. They weren't fighting against each other. But here they are fighting against each other. The history of Israel and Judah has been one of internal fights and disputes and rivalry and feuds and 
disagreements and sin, and it's fractured every relationship. That's always what happens. It just seems like a little fight here or a little feud there, but you let that fester, and it will rip you apart. It will destroy you. It will destroy a kingdom. It will destroy a church. It will destroy a family. It will destroy a community. Make no mistake about that. So here you have two people, that, two kingdoms that used to be friends. They used to be united. And one is fighting against the other. He, they are willing to join up with the enemy who are Syria. Like Israel and Syria have been enemies for years. They always fought together. But now they're teaming up to be friends. And you have Judah that just want to fly solo. So rather than coming together and fighting against the main enemy and the main threat, they'd rather just fight among each other. Judah has been shaken to the core in this passage. King Ahaz is very weak at this point. He suffered a great defeat. He's not down and out just yet, but things are not looking good for him. He sees this coalition from the north, and he knows they're going to attack again, and he knows he does not have the strength to get through this. King Ahaz once was a force to be reckoned with. We also need to remember that. He was such a powerful king at one point. He was also one of the most evil kings in the history of the kings that you will get in the Old Testament. In fact, he's the second most evil king in the whole of the Old Testament. One, two Kings 16.2 says that he did not do right in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on in verse 3 to say that King Ahaz even sacrificed his son in the fire to the pagan god, hoping to win favor of that pagan god. Yet here he is in this passage, and surprisingly in this passage, God sends a sign. And God sends a sign through two people. He sends a sign through um, Isaiah and his son, Jeshua. Ahaz doesn't ask for help from God, and he doesn't really deserve any help from God. Like he's bad and he's evil and he's wicked. He doesn't deserve anything from God. But here comes a sign. There's a fearful King Ahaz and he's going to get a reassuring sign from God from these two men before they even open their mouth. Let me explain what I mean by that. So if you look at verse 3, verse 3 tells us that King Ahaz is out checking his water supply. That seems strange, but there's an attack that is intimate. So if there's an attack going to come, what can happen is that your city can be under siege for weeks and months. So it's really important that you have a good source of water coming into that because that's a source of life for your people. So he's out checking that. He's out checking worst case scenario in this passage. And then his PA comes and says, you've got a couple of visitors, King Ahaz. Who, who are there? Says King Ahaz. And he is told that Isaiah is there and Sheer Jeshub is there. Did you see the sign? Because that's the sign in this passage. Did you see it? Well, what if I was to tell you that their names are very important? And if we were to know what their names mean in the original text, in the original language, that will explain why this is such a powerful sign. Isaiah means the Lord who is salvation. The Lord who is the rescuer. That's what his name means. That's a lovely sign. Sheer Jeshub means a small number will return or a small number will repent. So if you put their names together in the original Hebrew, this is what King Ahaz would have heard. The Lord is your rescuer. A small number will repent or a small number will be saved. 
Ahaz has been reminded that God is a rescuer, that he will be their help, that he will send help, that he will rescue and save people, that they will not be wiped out of the history books. Despite all the disobedience and despite all the feelings and despite all the evil in this man, still God steps in and still God intervenes and still God gives him a sign and still God says that he will rescue and that help is on the way. And I guess it doesn't matter what enemy you are facing today. Like I know it matters to you and it matters to me when I face my enemies. And sometimes it feels like in this passage that just everyone is just joining up and coming against us. This passage is saying it doesn't matter how many come against you. It doesn't matter how many surround you. It doesn't matter how many join forces and come to attack you. What matters is that God is in the midst of this. What matters is that God has the power to save and God has the power to rescue you. What matters is that help is coming. What matters is that there is hope in this passage. In verse 4, there's this phrase where it says, keep calm. Isaiah simply tells King Ahaz just to keep calm. You could translate that to mean do nothing. And that seems like the most crazy advice. Doesn't that seem like the most crazy advice? Like if you're about to get into battle and go into war, the advice is just to keep calm and just to do nothing. But there are so many battles that we would read in the Old Testament where God tells his people just to stand still. Stand still and do nothing. Stand still and let God be God. Stand still and watch God deliver. Stand still and watch God fight your battles for you. Like there's a modern song that we sing that wasn't about in Isaiah chapter seven, but you know the song, this is how I fight my battles? I sang it last week. This is how I fight my battles. It may feel like I am surrounded, but I am surrounded by you. If that song had been about in Isaiah's day, that would have been the theme music for this passage. How often are we exhausted when we're trying to fight battles? How often do we get exhausted fighting battles that we were never supposed to fight? How often do we become overwhelmed trying to carry something that we were never supposed to carry in the first place? I don't know what is going on in your life, but maybe like King Ahaz or his nation in first two, maybe you tremble with fear. I don't know what today has brought to your world. I don't know what 2019 has brought to your world. I don't know what some people have said or what some people are doing or what some people are plotting or scheming or just that things keep seeming to get worse and worse in your life. I don't know what is going on in your life, but maybe you feel like the ones in this passage, we're just trembling with fear. We need to know in those moments that God reigns supreme. We need to know in those moments that God fights our battles. We need to know in those moments that God is greater and more powerful and stronger and able and faithful. We need to fight our battles by praying on our knees. We need to fight our battles by praying on our knees, by just pouring out our heart before God. You need to fight your battles by standing still. It seems the most unnatural thing to do for us as Christians, but just to stand still and let God be God. It may feel or seem like you are surrounded, but you need to know that you are surrounded by God, a powerful, supernatural God who never shakes, who is never in fear, who is never threatened, who is never under pressure, a God who is constantly always in control. 
Ahaz in this passage has everything he needs. You notice that? He has everything that he possibly needs. He is a sign from God. The sign comes through the two names. He also has heard a promise from God, a promise that God will rescue and save. And he's also told the third thing, just stand still and do nothing. Stand still and let God be God. But King Ahaz just cannot do that. He fidgets. He fidgets, not because he's one of those fidgety type people that just can't stand still. He fidgets because he just can't stand still long enough to trust God, because he just doesn't trust God. He doesn't have confidence in God to be able to stand still and do nothing. See, he would rather be doing something, plotting something, scheming something, directing something, giving advice about something. He'd rather take things into his own hands and do them himself, rather than give everything over to God in this passage. And remarkably, in verse 11 of Isaiah 7, God offers to give him another sign. Like he can literally ask for anything he wants. Absolutely anything he wants. And he can ask God for that. And God will deliver on that to prove that God is a trustworthy God. Like this is King Ahaz, the second worst king in the history of kings in the Old Testament, and God offers him two signs, and the second sign, he can literally ask for whatever he wants. But in verse 12, he refuses. He says, I can't do that. I can't do that. How can I put my God to the test? Which sounds spiritual. It sounds like he's quoting scripture. It sounds like he's quoting Deuteronomy, where you cannot put the Lord your God to the test. But in this passage, God has said, you can put me to the test. Ask me for whatever it want, whatever you want. So I wonder why he doesn't take God up on that. Because I don't know if you've faced something or you've gone through something. You just kind of say, I wish I could ask God for anything to prove that he's there. I wonder what you'd ask for. I would love that. I would love this kind of wild card where you can ask God for literally anything and he will give you that sign as a way of trusting him. He has that in this passage, but he refuses to do that. I wonder why. I wonder why. Well, maybe he just doesn't want to change. Maybe he doesn't want to change because he doesn't want to appear weak. Because could you imagine being the king at this chapter Could you imagine being the commander-in-chief at this point? Can you imagine that your troops are looking to you for military advice, for direction, for leadership, and all you say is, yeah, well, I've just had this prayer meeting with God, and God just tells me to stand still and do nothing. How do you think that's going to go down? Stand still and do nothing makes it sound like stand still and we're just sitting ducks in this passage. It sounds, humanly speaking, the most ridiculous advice. So he doesn't ask for a sign. Or maybe another reason he doesn't ask for a sign is because he's really decided where he's going to put his hope. And he's not going to put his hope in God, but he's going to put his hope in the other superpower that is Assyria. And that's where he hopes to win this battle. He says to Assyria, come and save me. Assyria. And he does everything he possibly can to get them onto his side. He takes all the silver and all the gold of the temple and of the royal house, and he sells it all to buy their favor, to buy their protection. He hopes to get them on his side, and if he get them on his side, then there will be protection in this. He hopes to buy his way 
out of trouble. He rejects God and he accepts this pagan superpower. Judah will be saved, but they won't be saved in Isaiah chapter 7. And they definitely won't be saved under the reign of King Ahaz. Only a small number will be saved. King Ahaz has turned to Assyria. And Assyria come to Ahaz, but they don't come to help him or save him or rescue him or comfort him. They come to take over. He tries to tame them, but they bite back and they defar him. We end this passage with his worst nightmare. The land just being destroyed and desolate. I guess the point is, whatever you are putting your hope in or whoever you are putting your hope in, if it is not God, it will always destroy you. It will always fail you. Whatever or whoever you are putting your hope in, if it is not God, it will always destroy you and it will always fail you. So what's the hope of this passage? Because there's going to be hope in this passage. Because this would be a rubbish place just to pray and just send us on out. What is the hope of this passage? Where's the Christmas hope in this passage? Because at this point, it seems to be lacking any of the Merry Christmas, and it seems to be lacking any of the hope of Christmas. Well, God does give a sign in this passage. I wonder if you could ask God for a sign. What would you ask for? What would you ask for? If you could fully trust in God, or if you could just trust in someone else or something else, which one would you pick? Which one would you pick? Because I guess the easy thing about this passage is it's easy to point the finger at Ahaz and say, I can't believe this guy. Like he was handed this on a plate. And he just rejected God. How can he do that? One sign in itself was amazing, but to get two signs is just, and he just turned it down. Easy to point the finger at him. But then I wonder, how's our week been? What has your week been like as you trusted God this week? Did you find that easy this week? Did you find it easy to trust God in whatever scenario came up against you? Or even as you look back at 2019, have you found this a year where you've always trusted God no matter what? Have you found it easy to trust God? Even sometimes when you have to wait, do you like waiting? Would you wait seven minutes for a sign? Would you wait seven hours, seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven years for a sign? What's your limit you would put on that? Would you wait 700 years? Because in this passage, the sign that God gives in Isaiah 7, that people have to wait 700 years before it is fulfilled. And basically what happens is we jump from Isaiah chapter 7, 700 years, and we land in the New Testament. We land in a book called Matthew chapter 1. And that's the real famous one we left out at Christmas time. And in Matthew chapter 1, there is a first 23 that links us back to Isaiah 7, verse 14. They both read exactly the same. Here's what it says. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. In Matthew chapter 1, there's another crisis. There's a crisis with this young couple, a young couple called Mary and Joseph. They're not married. Mary's fallen pregnant. The child isn't Joseph's. What are they going to do? Who are they going to turn to? Who's going to listen to them? Who wants to know their story? 
This is a moment of fear. This is a moment of uncertainty. This is a moment where they don't know what to do next or where to turn or where to look or who to trust or what's going to happen next. They are shaking like a leaf at this point in Matthew chapter 1. Why should we care about this young couple in Matthew chapter 1? Because we're still waiting for this rescuer that we were promised 700 years ago. Where's, where's he at? Why care about this couple in Matthew chapter 1? Well, the reason we're to care is because the angel in Matthew 1 goes on to say this. Do not fear. Take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is going to come to save not just Judah, but coming to save the world. You've had centuries 700 years of violence and disobedience and rejecting God and trusting in other people, trusting in other kings, trusting in other gods. You've had 700 years of waiting. Long, painful, slow waiting where all seems lost as we arrive in Matthew chapter 1 and then suddenly, suddenly God interrupts. And he steps into world history. And he comes to save the world. But this time he doesn't send another prophet with a fancy name. He doesn't even send a king in riding on a horse with his military band behind him to rescue and save the day. He sends a baby. And if you had a plan to rescue people, that sounds as crazy as it does back in Isaiah chapter 7. Whenever you're going to be attacked, just stand still and do nothing. It seems as crazy to say, we're going to save the world with a baby. And God sends a baby nonetheless into the world. But this is no ordinary baby. This is Emmanuel. This is God with us. Jesus is born as the king of all kings. And he comes as our hope. He comes as our strength. Because here's the thing, in Isaiah chapter 7, you need rescued. But for you to be rescued in Isaiah chapter 7, you need a good leader. You need a strong leader. You need a leader that's going to do the right thing and actually care for the people or put his life out there for the people. But we don't find that in Isaiah chapter 7. But we do find it 700 years later as Jesus comes into this world to give us hope. So I'm not sure what you are going through. I'm not sure what you are suffering. I'm not sure how hopeless you feel your life is. During worship tonight, I just had this sense that God wants to put hope into your life. And I don't even know what Christmas brings for you, what that thought brings to you. But God wants to bring you hope in this season. He wants to give you hope. He wants you to encounter himself, his presence. I love this quote. I want to end with this quote from Bonhoeffer. It says this. The blessedness of waiting is lost on those who cannot wait. And the fulfillment of promise is never theirs. They want quick answers to the deepest questions of life and miss the value of those times of anxious waiting, seeking with patient uncertainties until the answer comes. They lose the moment when the answer 
answers are revealed in dazzling clarity. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect, and who look forward to something greater to come. For these, it is enough to wait in humble fear until the Holy One Himself comes down to us. God in the child in the manger. God comes. Hear that. God comes. The Lord Jesus comes. Christmas comes. And Christians rejoice. Let's pray.